Welcome to another episode of Odd Lots. I'm Tracy Alloy, Executive Editor of Bloomberg Markets. And I'm Jill Weisenthal, Managing Editor of Bloomberg Markets. I want to let our listeners in on a little secret. This isn't widely known outside the Bloomberg office, but Joe abhors fun in all its forms. He hates whimsy, he hates photos of cute animals, and anything related to general merriment. Wait, that's not true. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, you're right. That's pretty much true. I'm pretty yeah. much... I like having fun. Just I just don't like most people's definition of it, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you have your own definition yeah, of fun. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, on that note, I thought today, in an effort to uh, change Joe's mind about fun and humor in general, uh, we might embark on something a little different. Something fun, but obviously it still needs to be markets-related. So, Joe, I'm really excited to say that we're going to have... Today, someone who bills himself as the world's first and only stand-up comedian economist. Wait, stand-up economist? That's a thing? Yeah, it is. Hmm. I'm skeptical. (laughs) All right, so we're having Yoram Bauman on. He has a PhD in economics from the University of Washington. He also travels the country doing comedy gigs at universities and economic conferences, making jokes about yield curves and supply and demand and okay. all that fun stuff. I'm even more skeptical right now. <laughs> uh, there's actually a circuit of going around making jokes at comedy conferences and universities. I swear there is. If you look at his website, he has a list of every show that he's done. And he's... Uh, as economists would say, very much in demand. <laughs> okay. okay. I can well, see I'm you intrigued. need convincing. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, no, no, I'm starting to get intrigued. Just to give you an idea, we're going to have Yoram come on, and at the beginning, he's going to do a short set for us, and I've also brought in some of our Bloomberg colleagues to uh, be our guinea pigs and his audience. All right, well, I'm looking forward to uh, being convinced. Ladies and gentlemen, Yoram Bauman. Yay. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be with all of you uh, today. My name is Yoram Bauman. I uh, appear before you as the world's first and only stand-up economist. Yes, it's a uh, it's a niche market. Uh, I really only have one thing going for me as a stand-up economist, and that's low expectations. <laughs> when I told my father that I was going to be a stand-up economist, he said, Yoram, he said, you can't be a stand-up economist. And I said, why not? And he said, because there's no demand. <laughs> Boom. That was the first joke I ever told on stage. Uh, I said, don't worry, Dad. I'm a supply-side economist. I just stand up and let the jokes trickle down. Uh, I believe in the laugher curve. <laughs> Those are actually just my jokes to test how much economics everybody knows, and then I kind of arrange the rest of the routine accordingly. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm happy to say that it's been a, a, a good couple years for economics comedy. Uh, a few years ago, I got to be on the PBS NewsHour. Now, I don't know how much you all know about the world of stand-up comedy, but let me just tell you this. In the world of stand-up comedy, it does not get any bigger than the PBS NewsHour <laughs> with Tim Lair. Uh, it was pretty amazing. They interviewed three economists on the show. They interviewed uh, Robert Schiller who won the Nobel Prize. They interviewed Joseph Stiglitz, who won the Nobel Prize, and they interviewed me. Uh, I felt like kind of a self-aware version of Sarah Palin. <laughs> and, and what did they ask in my moment of TV fame on the PBS NewsHour? They asked me if I'd ever bombed on stage. <laughs> a couple things about this, right? First of all, I am not afraid of failure. 
All right, I'm an economist. <laughs> Secondly, I'm a professional comedian, right? So if a joke doesn't work, you just sort of keep throwing stuff out there until you find something that sticks. It's basically the same thing that the Fed and the Treasury did for the last six or seven years. <laughs> uh, and finally, I had to admit, on the PBS NewsHour, in fact, I had bombed on stage. The worst show I ever did was in October of 2008. I'm sure you remember what was happening to the global economy and the stock market in October of 2008. October of 2008, I did a show in Colorado Springs for a group of bankers. And uh, comedy is kind of a violent business, right? Like, if you're doing well, then you're killing. If you're doing badly, then you're bombing. Uh, and I totally bombed that show. And I actually did so poorly that I spent a fair amount of time afterwards sort of soul-searching, like trying to figure out where had I lost the connection with this audience of bankers in Colorado Springs in October of 2008. And I finally realized that I lost them on my opening line. That my opening line was, Hey, how's it going? <laughs> uh, maybe I'll close this set with some, uh, you might be an economist, if jokes. So uh, you might be an economist if you think that America's next top model should be an endogenous growth model. Uh, you might be an economist uh, if you don't read human interest stories because they don't interest you. Uh, you might be an economist if you've ever gone to a bank or other financial institution in the hopes of getting a date. Uh, if you plan to have your children born in December instead of uh, January so that you can maximize the discounted present value of the child tax credit. Uh, and finally, you might be an economist if you adamantly refuse to sell your children because you think they'll be worth more later. <laughs> Yorm, I, I, I thought that was really funny. Uh, I'm a big fan of puns. Yeah, that was the first time I've ever done a podcast uh, show by telephone to a group of five people. I'm trying to convince Joe that there can be humor in economics. Um, on that note, can you tell us how you actually had this idea and how you got into this uh, gig? Yeah, it was, it was basically a, a random coincidence. So while I was in graduate school uh, at the University of Washington getting my Ph.D. in economics, uh, I wrote a parody of the Ten Principles of Economics in a popular textbook by Harvard professor Greg Mankiw. And uh, I just kind of did that to blow off steam because that's what you do when you're in graduate school. And then one thing led to another. It got published in this science humor journal called the Annals of Improbable Research. And then they run a humor session every year at, at this big science convention that happened to be in Seattle. So they invited me to present my paper. And I uh, had so much fun, I kind of got into stand-up comedy as a hobby. And then um, I guess two things happened after that. One was my academic career, to be perfectly honest, it did not go quite as well as I'd hoped. Uh, and then the other thing was, it turned out that people were interested in paying me to do stand-up comedy about economics. And so 10 years later, this is now my, my profession. So this is your full-time thing. This is So what's the circuit like? How often do you perform uh, in a year? What are the common venues and so forth? Yeah, so this is sort of my, this is my paid job. Uh, nobody believes me, but this is how I make a living. I do stand-up comedy about economics. I have kind of a full-time unpaid job working on on carbon taxes and, and uh, a carbon tax ballot measure here in Washington State and climate change issues and tax reform and stuff like that. Um, but it's all financed by the miracle of economic comedy. Uh, mostly I do colleges and corporate events, and, um, you know, the, the colleges are, are sort of all over, and then the um, corporate events, some of them are financial uh, firms, but also just, I don't know, trucking executives on the banks of the Arkansas River. Uh, <laughs> 
you know, the Florida Bankers Association. How many gigs do you do a year? Uh, probably maybe 50 or 60. So, you know, a lot of people think of economics as a really dry subject. Do you think something like that lends itself to humor? Well, like those jokes that I told, uh, you know, that you might be an economist. If jokes, the reason those jokes work is because you have a stereotype that you can play against. And so anytime you have stereotypes, you can kind of do comedy. And, you know, there are these obvious stereotypes about economists being sort of hyper-rational and, and focused on money. And uh, and so when you have that, then 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 there's an opportunity to, to do comedy. And the fact that the fact that everybody has such low expectations makes it all the easier. Like I've often found that low expect having low expectations is one of the one of the great assets in life. It's one reason why I like being an economist because I think there are a lot of people in the world who tend to think that that other people should be good people at heart, and then they're you know often disappointed when when people let them down. Whereas <laughs> if you study economics, then you go into the world thinking that everybody's going to be kind of a self interested jerk, and it turns out that people are, are oftentimes much better than that, right? So you're pleasantly so, surprised. Yeah, you get the the benefits of low expectations. Yeah, I'd never really thought about that, that the sort of first building block of economics is the assumption that everyone is going to be selfish and cool and uh, self, you know, self-maximizing uh, all the time. But then as you learn more, of course, and most economists don't really believe that, but that as you learn more, the what happens is uh, humans surprise you to the... Uh, to the upside. So that is a kind of a nice thing about the economic worldview. I'd never really thought of it that way before. Yeah, I mean, well, the way that I describe it, I have a couple of cartoon economics books uh, that I co-authored with, with uh, illustrator Grady Klein. And the way we say it is that is that economists assume that people are optimizing individuals. And so that doesn't necessarily mean that they're optimizing just for themselves, right? No... Um, no economist would say that people just care about themselves and don't care about friends or family or, or even people in other parts of the world or animals or whatever. But, you know, there, there are a lot of cases where doing the economic models and sort of thinking through how the analysis works makes a lot more sense when you, when, when you kind of simplify things and say, okay, people are, are kind of basically self-interested. Do you have uh, counterparts in other academic fields? Like, is there a physics comedian, a chemistry comedian? Like, have you found those other, other types? Yeah, you know, for a while we thought about putting together uh, uh, like a university, like a comedy university, uh, which I still think would be an awesome idea, but it, it's never gone anywhere. Let's see, who do I know? There's a the fellow whose website is Science Comedian, Brian Mallow. He was a former astronomer. He talks about how he started doing comedy instead of astronomy because they put him on the day shift. Uh, uh, there's a fellow who actually got a PhD in neurobiology. His name is Tim Lee. Uh, very funny. His website, I think, is comedyoftimlee.com. Uh, there's a guy, Bill Santiago, who uh, wrote a book called um, Pardon My Spanglish. And he does, uh, he actually does stand up comedy in both English and Spanish. He's of, uh, I think he's from New York, but is of, of Puerto Rican descent. And he's, he's super funny and, and does a lot of comedy about language. So I think it would be totally possible to do that, to put together like a whole academic curriculum uh, just based on, on, on comedy. So, um, when you go off to economic conferences and you um, do your stand-up, do you ever get economists who are just having none of it, who are just completely humorless? <laughs> I do occasionally get people who think that, um, you know, I'm making fun of a serious subject and maybe their socks were pulled on too tight or something like that. Uh, but for, for the most part, people appreciate that, that um, you know, it's public education. And it's, it's, uh, I've taught high school as well as college. And when you teach high school... 
uh, one of the things you learn is that motivation is incredibly important, right? That, that it's not that the students don't have the book or don't have access to the materials. It's that, you know, they're lacking the, uh, sometimes they're, they're, they're lacking the impetus to actually read the book. And, um, you know, and that's why I worked on these cartoon books. And that's why, um, that's why I do some of the comedy is to, is to motivate people to, to pick up the book and, who are, and say, hey, maybe economics is kind of interesting. Who are some of the, uh, funniest economists out there? Doesn't Austin Goolsby do stand up? Are there, uh, Austin Gould, Austin who else Gould, is out there that's really uh, funny? Back at the University of Chicago does stand up. Uh, they're actually one so the humor session that I put on at the American Economic Association meetings, uh, it's usually me and then there's like four or five others, uh, folks who just give, they write papers on various things. Um, the most recent one, there's a fellow who presented a paper on, you know, economists will sometimes do like what's called non-market valuation to try to figure out like how much do we value having, you know, salmon in the the Sacramento San Joaquin river system. Uh, and this paper was about using those same economic techniques to figure out the value that salmon put on having salmon in the river system uh, <laughs> and the value that the salmon put on having humans in the river system. Presumably, salmon's uh, value being in the river greatly, right? Well, it, it turns out that they value their own lives quite highly, yes. <laughs> but their value for, for smolts, for juvenile salmon, is actually relatively low huh. and roughly comparable, I learned, to their valuation for, for juvenile humans, which was, uh, it was determined by showing salmon a, a picture of the Brady Bunch. Those were the juvenile humans that they picked uh, so it was, it was a funny paper. On that yeah. topic, Yoram, um, one of the reasons we stumbled upon you was because we read this uh, listicle, I guess, that you did called the top 11 funniest papers in the history of economics. And some mm. of them I had heard before, but some of them I had, haven't. And um, I got to read out some of the names of these papers. Uh, the Theory of Interstellar Trade by Paul Krugman, uh, The Effect of Prayer on God's Attitude Toward Mankind, and what is possibly my favorite is Japan's Phillips Curve Looks Like Japan by Gregor Smith. I love that one. Tell us about these papers and, and why you think economists decide to do them. So I've edited for uh, a number of years now the humor section of an economics journal, a real economics journal called Economic Inquiry. Uh, so they publish serious papers, and then every quarter or every issue they try to publish a, uh, what they call a miscellany piece, which is sort of a funny piece. So many of those papers, um, including the, the Paul Krugman paper, he's a Nobel Prize winner, the Jim Heckman paper, also a Nobel Prize winner, uh, were published in Economic Inquiry. Uh, Japan's Phillips Curve looks like Japan was actually published in the Journal of Money, Credit, and Banking, and it's almost certainly the funniest paper ever published <laughs> in the Journal of Money, Credit, and Banking. Um, I think people do it kind of on a on a, on a lark. Um, either something you know gnaws at them, which is kind of where I ended up with this parody of the ten principles of economics. Or uh, a lot of times they just come across haphazardly something something that 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 triggers this idea. So Japan's Phillips curve looks like Japan, right? The background is the Phillips curve was this idea from the fifties and sixties that there's a trade off between inflation and unemployment. Mm -hmm. You can have high inflation and low unemployment or the opposite, but the idea was that you're always on that Phillips curve line. And so what this economist was doing, he was actually looking at Phillips curve data for Japan and and graphed the Phillips curve data for Japan between uh I think it was like 1990 and 2005, and when he looked at the graph, it just happened to look 
like a map of Japan. Uh, and so he wrote this paper. There's actually a link on his website to the paper, and the link says that the title of this paper is also the abstract and, frankly, most of the text, uh, which is which is pretty great. So that was what led him to write that paper. There was another paper um, called The Efficiency of ACDC. Mm-hmm. I looked at the rock group ACDC, and uh, I don't know how big of a fan you are of ACDC, but they had two front men, two main singers, uh, Bon Scott and Brian Johnson, and apparently there's been a debate among uh, kind of metalheads ever since about which of them was the better front man for ACDC. And so there's this uh, economist, Rob Oxaby, in, in Canada, who was doing his research, he was doing serious research, his research was about um, how background music affects people's decision-making. And so uh, some of the songs that he had his graduate students or whatever playing the background were some of these ACDC songs, and they were trying to figure out whether the background music affected, like when people were negotiating, how does it affect the outcomes of negotiations? Yeah. And it turned out that, that the graduate student uh, kind of accidentally played two different ACDC songs during some of these experiments, and that ruined the data for the actual paper, but it gave him this idea for this joke paper where you can use the results because the two ACDC songs, one was a Brian Johnson song and one was a Bon Scott song, you can use those results to, to figure out that Brian Johnson, in fact, if you're negotiating, you'll want to listen to the Brian Johnson ACDC <laughs> songs and not the Bon Scott ones. Yeah. Can I just read from the abstract of that ACDC paper? It says, we use tools from experimental economics to address the age-old debate regarding who was a better singer in the band ACDC. These results may have important implications for settling drunken music debates and environmental design issues in organizations. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, what, uh, there's there was a follow up humor piece, which was that after this, uh, a- after he, you know, released this on his website or posted the paper on his website, it was picked up. It was it was it was in the newspapers, like in Australia, right, which is where ACDC comes from. So it actually got a ton of press. Uh, and then Steve Levitt picked it up. Levitt is at the University of Chicago, and he's one of the authors of Freakonomics. And he wrote a blog post about it, but he didn't realize that the paper was a joke. <laughs> So he wrote a blog post about it that was called This is What Happens to Economists When They Listen to Too Much ACDC. Uh, you know, he wrote, like, I, I I hope for this guy's sake that he has tenure. And Rob Oxby excited to post a comment on his blog, on Steve Levitt's blog, saying, first of all, I already have tenure. Thank you very much. And second of all, the paper's a joke. So uh, what are you up to now? You mentioned the uh, carbon tax thing, but outside of your stand-up, what, uh, what occupies your time? I am um, working on another cartoon book. So my co-author and I have two cartoon books about uh, economics. Uh, We have a cartoon introduction to climate change, and we are working on a cartoon introduction to calculus. So the cartoon books are are really fun. And, you know, in America, uh, especially, I I think um, cartoon books have kind of a little bit of a bad rap. People think that they're, quote, unquote, just for kids. Uh, But I've actually come to really appreciate them as a way to convey information to audiences of all ages. I mean, they're very accessible. They provide a way to, to do humor. And when you do a cartoon book, you don't have to um, feel like you need to put footnotes on everything and, and say 200 pages what you can say in uh, you know in 20 pages. Uh, and then I'm spending a lot of time working on uh, this, this carbon tax reform campaign here in Washington State. It's actually a ballot measure initiative, 732, uh, which just qualified for the ballot. We, our campaign gathered 
363,000 signatures last year. And uh, it's a pretty neat campaign. The idea is that, uh, you know, we have a moral responsibility to take action on climate change. And the way to do it is to have a carbon tax, use market instruments so you have a carbon tax, and then use the revenue from the carbon tax to reduce existing taxes. So we cut the state sales tax by a point um, uh, and reduce some other taxes for businesses and for low-income households. And that, that was actually the idea that, that got me into economics in the first place, was hmm. kind of this idea of environmental tax reform that we can use the tools of economics and the power of capitalism to protect the environment. It's a, a big thing that, I, that that's in my life right now, in addition to my wife and my 18-month-old baby. Well, our producers are signaling that we need to cut the fun short. Uh, so mm-hmm. one last thing before you go. Can, can you tell us one final economics joke, like a one-liner that we can use in our daily lives? Let's see. Do I have a good joke? Uh, I mean, I, I can tell you the oldest economics joke in the world, if you want. Yeah. The, the oldest economics joke in the world is, is about a physicist, a chemist, and an economist who are stranded on a desert island, and they don't have any food, and then a can of beans washes up on the shore, but they don't have a, a way to open the can of beans. And the physicist says, well, we'll just crack it against the rock here and does some calculations, and if we use this velocity, then the can of beans will open. And the chemist says, no, 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 that's too complicated. We'll put the can of beans in the salt water, and it will corrode, and after this much time, you know, we can eat the can of beans. And the economist says, no, nah, that's just too hard. Let's just assume we have a can opener. <laughs> I love that joke. I've heard that before, but I think it's a great joke. Yes, this is this is the the this is the only joke the the only economics joke that in in the in the world that uh, that most people think of. So that's the assume a can opener joke, and, and uh, it's ironic that I told it on your podcast because a great deal of the work that I do with with stand up economics is trying to convince people that there's more economics comedy out there than the op- than the assume a can opener. Joke. <laughs> All right, Yoram, thank you so much for joining thank us you. today. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Joe, did I convince you that it's it's fun to have fun? I thought he was awesome. But you know what the big picture is to mm-hmm. me? The fact that there's someone who makes a living being a stand-up comedian <laughs> or a stand-up economist. Like, what a country. Like, this is just so awesome. I'm just so glad to know that I just assumed that he was a professor somewhere and mm-hmm. that this was a little side thing. For some reason, it makes me really happy to know that someone can make a living being a stand-up economist. I wouldn't say what a country. I would say what a labor market. What a labor <laughs> market. Exactly. I thought it was great discussion, and I'm a big fan of all these uh, semi-ridiculous economics papers, so it was fun to bring up some of those favorites. And I am also just a sort of a, uh, from the philosophy of comedy <laughs> angle, I love this idea about how they're equivalents to him in all these different areas. Right. And how there are certain superstructures of jokes, like you might be a, an economist <laughs> or these sort of structures of jokes that we all know that then could be applied to really niche fields. And I'm sure you could probably go really deep into economics. You could, you know, you might be a financial economist if and get even further uh, in the weeds. So I love the way that works out. I really want that comedy university to happen. That would so be so great. Fingers crossed. All right, I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Thanks for listening to another episode of Odd Lots. We at Bloomberg are proud of our new and growing slate of original content podcasts. They include Benchmark, a jargon-free dive into the stories that drive the global economy. It's hosted by Tori Stilwell, Aki Ito, and Dan Moss. Odd Lots, hosted by Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway, 
takes you on a not-so-random walk through hot topics in markets, finance, and economics. And each week, Bloomberg M&A reporter Alex Sherman discusses market-moving news about mergers in Deal of the Week. From Washington and points in between, meantime, we showcase the intersection of politics and pop culture with Culture Caucus, hosted by John Heilman and Will Leach from Bloomberg Politics. And then there's Masters in Politics, hosted by veteran TV producers Tammy Haddad and Betsy Fisher-Martin. This bi-weekly podcast features extended conversations with candidates, campaign strategists, and journalists. You can find all these podcasts on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, iTunes, SoundCloud, and any one of your very favorite podcast platforms.